Welcome back for yet another week of Behind the Lens. It is hard to believe we are already in the middle of August, the second week of August. Welcome. I am film critic, creator and host of Behind the Lens. You can find my movie reviews and interviews in the U.S. and abroad in print and online on BehindTheLensOnline.net. But every Monday, right here at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Adrenaline Radio with behind the lens and today i am so excited to have back again i'm back janice rouse <laughs> is in the house hooray well that's you you just have so many projects going I on do. it's that, insane yeah that you know we can just do like whole shows of each project well thank you it, it works <laughs> out that well way. good yeah and of course then a guest that both of us are looking forward to calling in at 11 30 mm-hmm Victor Matthew is going to talk all about his new film, which opens on Friday, The Monster Project. Monster Project. And I think Jeunesse summarized it, best classic horror. Classic horror. It is your classic horror film, the way horror films are supposed to be made. Yeah. So, yeah. And literally. so we're both excited that Victor's yeah. <laughs> going to be calling it. Because for those of you that weren't tuning in two weeks ago and shame on you if you weren't you didn't listen to the itunes podcast afterwards yeah janess is a very talented filmmaker she has her tv pilot that is currently out there Mm -hmm. becca on call yeah which is just absolutely it is so much fun yeah it's starting to it well the world premiere was back in june and now it's starting to this is festival season festival season just started yeah. really picking up steam so it's going to be being premiered and aired at different festivals so people will finally start to be well it's to in it. alabama at the end of this month alabama end of this month it's going to be in texas next month and there are some other festivals that i cannot share but texas texas is it. your home stomping uh, it is that's where i started so are all the hometown folk going to get to see it yeah, eventually. <laughs> if we have to do a private screening, there was talk of doing a private screening at uh, my school, Trinity School, which we shot a scene there. Mm-hmm. So there is that potential of doing a private kind of, hey, guys, if you're an alumnus of Trinity, you could do this. So. <laughs> or you can try and do this. Yeah. Well, you know, my class was a very unique class. We had some... Broadway singers and Broadway producers come out of my high school uh, class, Mm -hmm. Uh, not only my class, but also uh, some people who are a couple years ahead of me. They are now Tony Award winning directors and producers on Broadway. So, you know, it's just that four year uh, group really, we just had a lot of little starlets come out of us. So I'll tell you. Yeah. You never know. You never know. But one thing that I do know is that you are so, so talented. Oh, thank you. You write, you direct, Mm -hmm. you you produce. Sing. Sing. (laughs) Classically trained, no less. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you do it all. As you have called yourself, Jacqueline of all trades. And I love that. I just think that's so fun. Well, one of the things that the, the... L.A. industry, when I moved to L.A., that I found out very, very quickly is it's a lot of hurry up and wait. And I had to kind of get a feel for how L.A. worked, Mm -hmm. um, working with some people and just observing. And finally, um, last summer was when I start live launched Rising Monarch Productions to really start creating my own work. Uh, Filmed back on call last fall and then started pitching it. Didn't know what would happen with it, mm-hmm. but I also found out that, okay, so that's the film world, but I'm still just sitting. <laughs> <laughs> so what else can I do while I'm waiting for, you know, uh, news back, report back from back on call, see if it even goes anywhere. Right. And that's when I started um, the 
RMP concerts, Rising Monarch Productions concerts. And that's from my stage background, mm-hmm. the Broadway background. And it originally started with my friend Stephen, who is a New York Broadway singer. And he and I sang opera and Broadway back in Texas in our music school at Odessa College. And he was coming to L.A., just brief, fun trip. And I said, Stephen, do you want to sing? <laughs> he's like yeah so I started looking for any kind of parties it was Valentine's weekend so I started looking for parties any anybody who might want a couple of singers to sing some duets nothing was going on if they had a party we were not invited so I rude uh, (laughs) well I mean I'm I don't really run those circles but um I finally, it's that whole thing of you can either wait for somebody else to do something and then hope that you get selected or you can go out and do your own thing. Right. And so what I started with was, well, what if we put on our own little concert, duet concert? And that was at a coffee shop in February. And we had about 15 people show up. <laughs> but the feedback that we got from some people who are just stragglers, there were a lot of people who were walking uh on the sidewalk who were peering at, there was so much construction going on Mm -hmm. all around Wilshire that it was just noise, but people heard the music and they came in and said, what is this? Is she singing anywhere else? And that kind of got me thinking, well, maybe I need to make this into something. And that started the whole RMP concert, um, program where it's a monthly concert and change venues from the coffee shop to the Hudson theaters. Mm -hmm. And we do this once a month where I will set a theme and we'll have guest musicians, guest actors um, on occasion that will do different sketches or now with the guest musicians, like in our next one, we will have, they will be performing some music. And of course the music that I sing, it's all according to the theme for Mm -hmm. that concert. And, you know, everybody, when you watch the video, this is, <laughs> this is it. This R&B is concerts. It. It's time again. It's time again because yeah. this was your theme for July. For July. Times and seasons. Times and seasons. And the thing about July, that was the first one where we really showcased a musician. And it seemed to generate even more feedback than the sketches. And it's not saying that the sketches won't be brought back in. Mm -hmm. It's just when you see a door, this is something that I have learned in LA. When you see a door, even if it's not the door you were thinking you're going to go through, you go through it. Mm -hmm. If the door is opening, you walk through that door. And my win, she was my guest uh, for the last one. She's from a French music group, Sonatas and Duo. It was just her. She's a harpist. Beautiful harp sound they uh she recently moved in from france just three months ago mm-hmm. to la talent beyond wow. talent and we did a couple of duets together she had a couple of solos and the music for its time we did some Inya, we did some classic broadway mm-hmm. and uh, a little bit of uh, even soundtrack from some the summer 42 70s or 60s film 70s Um, yeah yeah so when I started hearing what people were saying about that concert I really wanted her husband my wins husband to be a part of the same (laughs) music because a couple of the songs that we did had saxophone solos and he's a sax player okay and they make the full they are the full sonatas and duo music group and when I started, you know, talking to my band, the RMP concert band, and to my win, and finally to Willie, would you be interested in doing this again? Mm-hmm. Maybe use some of the same songs, but switch out with some jazz numbers, you mm-hmm. know, really showcase both of you as a music group, but as well as the jazz sax right. player. And that's why it's kind of an encore. And we're doing some of the same songs because some of those songs had saxophone solos that we weren't able to do. And now you can do it. And now we can do it. So we're going to be doing that. But then Willie will be able to have kind of a showcase number that I will duet with him, Autumn Leaves. And, uh, of course, Mywin and I will do our duet. And then Sonatas and Duo, the sax and harp duet, which you would never think that that no. would be a duet. It's this juxtaposition of band and strings. And it is, or brass and strings. And it is 
gorgeous. Wow. You would never think it would work, but when you hear them play, of course, they're a husband and wife, so right. automatically they already have that kind of... That ebb and flow. Uh, that ebb and flow, yeah. that union already going on. So when you bring that into music, it's dynamite gorgeous. And then so, your band will also be performing. Yes, my band. They are all very talented, um, experienced band players. They've played with everybody. And I would butcher the list of musicians that they played with but they played with everybody for years so it's essentially your own set of studio it's musicians own set of studio your musicians. own wrecking yes. crew yeah yeah and we've got people from the sam ash music store on sunset boulevard mm-hmm. coming in that's scotty v he's strings and background vocals and he's been everywhere played with everyone okay. then you've got andrew butler who plays bass uh, same as Scotty. They both work at Sam Ash. Then we've got Brad Watson on keys. Now he played with me on the Valentine's concert with Steven. Okay. So he's been with me since the very beginning. Aww. And he's a band pianist with classical training. So he can play just about anything mm-hmm. you put in front of him. Um, and then we've got Mr. Bobby McBride, who joined us last time as our drummer, incredibly talented drummer. And he showed me when at our first rehearsal where I met him for the first time, he said, okay, so I know you like butterflies. And then he pulls out his, I think it's his snare drum. There are butterflies all around his snare drum. So I was like, it's a match. Made in heaven. <laughs> wow. So we've got... Just a really great ensemble that not only supporting me, but then I can bring in talented musicians or talented mm-hmm. actors to really create a uh, unified story. Because I, I set the tone, I set the theme for this, you know, not only the theme for the concert, but I also interact with my audience. Mm-hmm. When I come out, I expect the audience to participate. It's a lot more fun for an audience in a live show if they're actually engaged. Right. And they're talking with the, the host or the hostess. Mm-hmm. Not just clapping, not just going, oh, this is entertaining. That's the movie theater. Right. This is live theater. And mm-hmm. live theater is meant, there's a different energy. So when you come to my show... You're going to be participating in it. You're going to be laughing. You're going to be talking, answering questions. And it's very engaging. And it's far more effective in the sense of you will remember it mm-hmm. because you used all of your senses. You know, you, you of course, the smell of the theater. You know, every uh, theater has every its theater own has smell. A, they, it, it's true. <laughs> uh, your, your audio, your visual, but then you're also speaking. Hmm. You're participating. You're touching it by being involved. Right. So it's a great, awesome show. It's just I can only do one once a month. <laughs> so I wish I could do them every weekend, but that's not where we are right now. So it's but still a concept show. Now, the Hudson Theaters, how yes. did you find, get get entangled with Hudson Theaters as they a venue? They just liked me when I walked in. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. I just walked in. I, I emailed. I said, I'm looking for a venue. Just started. only done two coffee shop right. shows. And we had way outgrown it. And I just was looking for other venues. I had gone down Theater Road just asking different people. I walk into the Hudson. And I had talked to, I think it was Zeke is the guy in charge. And I had emailed him. I only do this once a month right now. Would it be possible that you would allow us to come in? We'd set up day of, strike day of, you know, just it's real simple. It's more mm-hmm. about the people being brought in than it is about the show. Right. And uh, there were, yeah, go for it. Come on in. Enjoy yourself. And they are fabulous. We're in the backstage, which is the biggest theater. It's my favorite theater oh. of the group. So uh, it's very much reminds me of the black box theaters that you see off Broadway. Mm-hmm. And it's a 99 seat theater, which is perfect for when oh, you're yeah. a startup yeah. uh, kind of stage show. And it still has a f- the feeling of what could be a television set. Um, uh, I think Comedy Central does some of their stuff in the same venue. Mm-hmm. So it's still got that feel. Right. 
but it's large enough that it has the, you know, the off-Broadway show feel. So it's intimate. People can feel more engaged that way. But it's not so small that you feel uncomfortable. Right. So, um, but yeah, no, I love the people there. Tiffany, Harry, they're the ones that work with me. And then Bruce is my uh, house manager who runs oh. everything. And then my stage manager, Valerie. I just absolutely, they are a family. And once you come in and you start working with them, they take so good care of you. And mm. there's a little cafe outside Aww. so people can eat something before they go in. And it's just a beautiful setting and very uh, rich atmosphere. You don't feel like you're in an old rickety theater. You feel like you're in a, a real solid theater mm-hmm. when you walk in. Because so. there are some that have that rickety feel. Yes. Yeah. And the Hudson's kind of known. A lot of films have come out of uh, optioned stage plays out of Mm -hmm. there. I know My Big Fat Greek Wedding was actually stage play Mm -hmm. that started at the Hudson and was, I think it was in the backstage theater. It might have been in the main stage, but they, that's where they started was they just did that show over and over and over. And then a film studio picked it up and said, let's make this into a movie. So they have a great track record Mm -hmm. and to be invited to be a part of their family has been an incredible honor and just a blessing really. Well, and yeah, let's let everybody know where Hudson Theater yes. is. It's at 6539 Santa Monica Boulevard in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. What is the, what's the nearest cross street there to give people an idea? It's between Wilcox and Hudson. So okay. it's right on Hudson, which the big street is Highland. You go mm-hmm. if you go straight up Highland and then turn Right, <laughs> left, right. You turn right on Santa Monica Boulevard. Okay. It's right there. You will actually see the marquee for Hudson, and you will see the RMP concerts. We're in the marquee. Oh. So our sign is, and it's got my little butterfly with my eyes. <laughs> so no copyright infringements. <laughs> Those are mine. Yes, yes. Um, and, but our, our RMP concerts are in the marquee and uh, in the sign next to Hudson Theater. So it's it's pretty... Uh, well seen, but it's mm-hmm. right in the middle of theater row. So, how do you pick the theme for each of these shows? Well, typically the week or about ten days before the last show, I will start kind of humming a random song, and okay. maybe it's a song that I've done. Maybe it's a song I wanted to do, and this happened with. I'll just, for example, we were getting ready for their March concert and I started humming the circle of life mm-hmm. from Lion King. And then another song, which is memory from cat started to come up in, uh, my mind. And I just started humming it and humming it. And then I started looking at it and it's, it kind of, the, the songs come very quickly. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the song, the song list, you kind of see a theme going on with it. Now the story that mm-hmm. I typically tell is developed as I'm getting ready for the next concert, but the songs come first. Mm-hmm. So for it's time, for example, I was, I actually had a break cause I was debuting back on call during June, but at the end of May, right after our Memorial day concert, mm-hmm. I started humming some songs. It's uh, the time heals everything, which is my classic standard that I've sung. I sang in New York mm-hmm. all over the place. And then not a day goes by was a song that one of my um, Willie Falk, he's a Broadway singer. He was singing in our workshop and getting ready to go audition for some of his fabulous roles. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Valjean, he ends up going and being Valjean um, off Broadway. So I'm like, okay, just go and do your thing. But I was reminded of him and how he sang it. So I started looking at Not A Day Goes By. Then it hit me, day, time, time. And then I started thinking of other songs. Only time, that's yeah. Inya. And uh, then, of course, seasons. What are some seasons? And for forever, that's a that talks about summer. And then um, I asked Mywin when I was introduced to her, "What do you know?" And she's like, "I really like this song called Summer. Have you ever heard of it? I had never heard of it. Barbara Streisand sings mm-hmm. it for the soundtrack for Summer Forty Two. And when I heard it, I was like." Can I sing it with you? Because <laughs> it's her solo. It's a harp solo. Right. And we came up, we kind of created the duet. Mm-hmm. And it's just 
gorgeous. So that's kind of, it starts off with songs Mm -hmm. and then I'll write a story as the weeks progress. So, so have you written a story for Saturday, for Saturday's performance? Oh yes. Oh yeah. It's about time. It's about the seasons in our life. And I don't want to say too much, but I use references of my personal story, which I, I share in the concerts and my journey. Um, throughout life. I've overcome a lot of adversity in my life. So I talk about how we, when we face different life situations, how we can have hope going through it by looking at, in this uh, story, how we look at the life of a tree and spring, summer, fall, winter. Uh Oh, okay. All right. It's a secret. You can't give away too much. No, you can't. Because then nobody will come. So. <laughs> but, you know, and, and she's walking away now, but talking about time and seasons. Yeah. We have to say happy birthday, birthday to Ms. Pamela. Yes. Yeah. Our wonderful sound engineer who has replaced Brian. Yeah. Who decided that, you know, she, work yeah. and school just didn't coincide. Well, so we love Pamela. Yes, we it's do. It's birthday. She's yes, queen she, of the day, but she left her post. She left her post. Yes, <laughs> she. Well, she's probably she's probably going to the restroom before Victor calls in in ten minutes. TMI. <laughs> yeah, since yeah. she since she has to answer. Since she has to answer the answer phone. the phone. Yes. Yeah. But no, I love the idea of how you and that's something. And I've got to bring her up. I have to bring her up. Carol Cook. Yes. In Carol yeah. Carol's. One woman shows. Yes, that she would do. She mm-hmm. tells a story and she always yeah. weaves in all of her life. Yeah. But she starts with the songs. Yes. There's something about music that really captures your heart and your spirit. Yeah. That just a, well, I'll give you an example with movies. Just a story is not going to cut it. But you add that music in. I remember when I was doing some editing and I was working with a production studio at the time and they, would we would have these scenes and I just went you gotta add music otherwise some of that acting is it looks good but I'm telling you you lose your audience when you don't communicate the mood that you want the audience to feel because that's what music does it brings out that your heart into it and we don't really understand all of it right but music just connects you to the emotion Mm -hmm. behind the story yeah and when you watch a movie and you just watch the scene without the music, it loses something. Yeah, because as good as actors can be, you can't always convey all of the emotion. What they're it, feeling on the inside. That's it. And mu- that's where yeah. the music comes in as the undercurrent. Yes, because it communicates to non-actors. Right. This is the emotion they're feeling. And that's why you have people going, oh, in the, <laughs> in the audience because... Not everybody thinks the way actors do. We're not all created creatively. Some of us are very logic and it just, it will fall deadpan on an audience yeah. unless you communicate with that music element. Mm-hmm. So, and in this, my version of the RMP concerts is I'm bringing balance because right. if you have just music, oh, it's gorgeous and people will know that it's gorgeous. But what's the mind. point? But what's the point? So mm-hmm. you got to speak something smart to our logical people who don't like necessarily some classical or mm-hmm. Broadway or even jazz. That's not their thing. But you bring in a story where they start to understand the music. Mm-hmm. You bring in the mind to it. The left side of the brain versus the right side of the brain. You bring both sides of the brain into it. Yeah. It makes it far more fulfilling than if it was just right or left. Mm-hmm. So that's what the reason for the story is. And I did that even growing up when I would be listening to a CD. And one of them is, was the Mannheim Steamroller Christmas. Yes. It was one of those CDs that I actually wrote a story to just listening to how the songs were put together. Mm-hmm. And I wrote out a fairy tale story according to those songs. No different than what Fantasia does. Right. But it's when you have a story, some people can hear the story when they're musicians, Mm -hmm. but some people can't. Right. And then you communicate the story, they will remember it more. Mm -hmm. So that's what the RP concerts are about. And of course, mentioning fairy tale. Oh, now she's back. Now she's back. We tell her happy birthday. Happy birthday, Pam. Yes. 
She missed it before. I don't. She doesn't deserve another one then, you know. Well, it's her birthday. That's true. She gets, she gets forgiveness and grace. That's, that's, that's true. But, you know, you mentioned fairy tale. So yeah. I'm so excited about this book. I, oh. have, I have to mention this book. It's the... This is the Princess April Morning Glory. It is a fairy tale. It is a storybook by Letitia Fairbanks. And for all you classic film fans out there, you know the name Fairbanks, as in Douglas and Mary Pickford. And this is Douglas's niece, who did this book back in 1941. And it is all hand-done. Calligraphy. Illuminated, <laughs> illuminated calligraphy. All of the illustrations, everything was hand-done by Letitia. This has been in the care and custody of her stepdaughter, Kelly Smoot Garrett. Kelly will be on will be joining us on the show uh, September twentieth, and then before the Christmas holidays. Yes, and I had the pleasure of sitting down with her on Saturday, and I so wish you had been there, Janice. Oh. You would have just died. Gorgeous. Number one, not just hearing all about the Fairbanks yeah. stories, because Kelly is also updating Letitia's book, The Fourth Musketeer, mm-hmm. and she's been doing research at the Herrick Library all week. And still this week, pulling new photos uh, and replacing them within the book to re- to update it with new images that people haven't seen. Mm-hmm. But her pet project, though, is bringing Princess April Morning Glory to life, to the masses. You can get the book now on Amazon. It's, it's brilliantly illustrated. It, uh, it is so gorgeous. What I was telling Debbie when she showed it to me was that... What I love about it is if you look very closely, you can tell it's hand done because of those tiny imperfections, which make it perfect. And it's the care and love that went into it. You can see it in every single stroke. The, it's got a very renaissance-y, uh, even medieval feel to it. Mm -hmm. Some of that calligraphy, some of the, uh, opening, capital letters i yes. don't uh, there's a name for it i where know they pictureize the capital <laughs> letter but just looking at the detail that she went through and, and and of course brilliantly colored the characters in here are all modeled after family members needless to say recognize some of them <laughs> prince chivalry i think every classic film fan will recognize as being the swashbuckling the swashbuckling yes, yes even the mustache, the mustache. <laughs> Douglas Fairbanks. I, it's this is just so beautifully rendered. King is John Barrymore, mm-hmm. but you almost just want to stare at it before you actually read the story. Yeah, it's so. And then to think, and here I was looking at these three foot high parchment panels, the originals from 1941, and wow. was just. And that they were still in excellent condition. Excellent condition. After how many years? 70 now? Yeah. Pretty close? Yeah. Yeah. But what's so, and I mean, you can act, and to see, because you can't see it in in the books, in the reproduction, Mm -hmm. but on the originals, you can actually see the illuminated outline of every one of these calligraphy letters. My goodness. It's not just calligraphy, it's illuminated calligraphy. And from 1941 or in the 40s, I was trying to figure out how long it took her to actually make it. It doesn't say in the book. And that's probably a question for Kelly. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, it took her so many hours to just painstakingly make each and every single stroke. And then to add that illumination to it. Yeah. It's what kind of technology did they have then? They didn't do that, which is why it didn't get published then, because Kelly also has a whole notebook of all the letters that Letitia's father, Robert, that he sent to all these publishers trying to get and all the rejection letters, too. It's, oh, my God, we love this, but But we don't know how to. Yeah, they they could not figure out how to. And then a couple a couple of them had no vision at all and said, well, we don't really think there's a market for fairy tales oh, like this. Grief. Well, and it's, it's only Sleeping Beauty came out from well, Disney. That's yeah. what it looks like. Even the calligraphy yeah. looks like the Disney, the classic Grimm's fairy yeah. tales. Yes. Yeah. But what's so and 
it, it just it amazed me. But what I love about the storybook is that the story, because Douglas Fairbanks, anybody that knows Douglas Fairbanks or has read any of his writings, because he wrote countless books about hope, inspiration, good mm-hmm. deeds. He had a philosophy of do three good deeds every day. And this is Princess April Morning Glory sets about to do three good deeds. Oh, three good deeds for today. So, I mean, it's it's a wonderful legacy for Letitia, for Douglas Fairbanks. And to bring and Kelly's very intent on bringing this idea of gentility and kindness back. Yes. In today's world. Classic, just good society, good personage. Yeah. And bring it back to today. We're missing that, that classicness. And that's why, yeah. like with our next guest, bringing in that <laughs> classic horror, it's just people are looking for classic. Yeah. And even the R&P concerts, classic music. Yeah. You you bring in the flair of modern modernity, yeah. but you also want to bring in that classic element because that's what lasts. Uh-huh. Well, that's like last Sunday, we were both in Culver City with Talk About Classic. With Alicia Mayer. Yes. Yeah. Doing a presentation MGM. on MGM. Her, she is the great grandniece of Louis B. Mayer mm-hmm. and the most outstanding and amazing presentation, photographs, anecdotes, private family stories. Yeah. Of just what it, what it takes to make that classic culture shift. Yeah. They, they shifted culture, but with the classic foundation. Yeah. Cause it's what, when you have a trend, it's nothing wrong with trends, but trends come and go. When you set the foundation of something that's classic, that will last, that has that element that just resonates with humankind mm-hmm. and just the simplicity of who we are as people, it's going to last to the next generations. Yeah, Absolutely. And we saw that in all the pictures, and I just still couldn't believe Alicia brought so many original photos. Oh, goodness. Yeah. So many of those framed photos. Were the originals. And as I'm, and I, and that was, I was framing them, and it's like, oh my God. It's the real thing. You'd almost feel like you're going to break it. Yeah. (laughs) Because some of those, it's like, there were, there were little typed and scotch taped where the tape is all yellow. Oh, and wow. type, you know, a little type thing at the bottom as to what it was and what the event was. And others had the actual old inkwell ink identifying. And it's like, no, my hands were clean. <laughs> I made sure my hands were clean. Wearing gloves. But yeah. I'm so thrilled. You got to, you, you got to come and I see that. I got to that. see it. Yeah. And, uh, well, it's what is inspiring about it. He was just another creative person who wanted to create work, create entertainment. He went into it with just this genuine desire not to make millions and millions of money. That was not his desire. His desire was to create, create stories. How can we do this a better way? And there was something about theater because he started in theater. Yes, he did. Is to really, it's, it's what we entertainers do. We want our audiences to feel good. We want them to enjoy themselves. We're, we're in the business of helping people. (laughs) Well, and you know, yeah. And there again, you know, L.B. Mayer, all of his films all were based on his own moral code mm-hmm. of family and, you know, hope and happiness yes. and overcoming adversity. Yeah. Which they, in their lives, there was a lot of adversity there going on. certainly was. Tons of adversity just in culture and in uh, government and in uh wasn't that the Great Depression? He went through the Great Depression a little bit, didn't he? A little bit, yeah. World War One was a major... And the family came over from, from the yeah, Ukraine. from the Ukraine. Yeah. And then the Spanish flu. There are just tons of adversity going on in everybody's lives that they wanted to create a safe place for people to go to feel good about themselves mm-hmm. and to have hope to continue on. Yeah. And that's what... I know for me, that's one of the things that I love to do. I tell screenwriters and people that I meet with all the time, oh, I'm interested if there's a happy ending. Yeah. I don't care yeah. what kind of thing you go through, but as long as there's a happy ending, I'm I'm sold. See, that's so, always my big thing. I, yeah. always, I love the happy endings. I yes. love the happy endings. Yeah. Just, you know, Pam, since Victor hasn't called yet, let us take a short break while I try and hunt down the publicist and find out where he do be. 
So plug us into a short break, and we will be right back. When you purchase the latest TV, tablet, or smartphone, don't forget to do the right thing with your old ones. Recycle them. The Consumer Electronics Association and its members are making recycling your old devices as easy as buying new ones. Just go to greenergadgets.org, type in your zip code, and you'll instantly find the recycling location closest to your home. You'll also find recycling tips, like asking the store where you buy your new TV if they'll haul away your old one. Don't let your old tech tools clog your local landfill. Just visit greenergadgets.org. And welcome back to Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, and with me in studio today is the fabulous Janice Rouse. She is here. You're here. And now we are bringing on somebody else extremely fabulous that Janessa and I are both thrilled to talk to. Victor Matthew. Welcome, Victor. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, my God. Okay. Janessa and I are both in (laughs) love with the Monster Project. Very well done. Very well done. (laughs) Good to hear. Thank you. This is, number one, it, it blows my mind the fact that this is all practical effects. You didn't gre- you didn't cheat and green screen it. Jim Banky's makeup and special and special visual effects are absolutely stunning. The wire work of your actors and stunt people is amazing, and to do it in such a claustrophobic kind of uh, area for so many of the action sequences. I mean, Philip Seaball does an amazing job. So I mean, I'm a huge fan of the Monster Project. <laughs> I'm so happy to hear that. That's amazing. Where did the idea for the Monster Project come from? This is It's a very unique premise. It's not like a Blair Witch Project by any stretch of the imagination. This is a very unique story. Right. So I uh, came up with it a while ago. I think about four and a half years ago, maybe five years ago. Uh, I'd seen a movie called The Hamiltons. Um, it's a vampire film, and I was I started getting the idea. Well, first of all, at the time, I was trying to find a way to make a movie, uh, my first film, uh, as my directorial debut. And I had been working for a while trying to develop a, a feature film of mine called Carnivo, uh, the clown film about chlorophobia, phobia of clowns. And I had a hard time raising financing for it because it's just a, a quite an expensive film. And so uh, Phil and I, I had become very good friends with Phil at the time. We were trying to find a way to, to make a movie together. And so I'd seen that movie, The Hamiltons, which I just mentioned, and it kind of gave me the idea, what if I made a film um, about a group of filmmakers that came into a house to interview uh, uh, a family of vampires? And then I realized that because I'm such a fan of a big fan of Goosebumps, especially growing up and this video game called Escape from Portland that I, I played again and again, developed by uh, or released by DreamWorks Interactive, uh, just inspired me so much. I love monsters so much. I thought it'd be cool and fun. And I kind of banked on the idea that people would like to see a movie with multiple types of monsters. And so that's how I came up about the idea of the Monster Project, which uh, eventually developed to a story about a group of filmmakers interviewing a variety of types of monsters. And uh, with social media still present in today's society and life, um, we kind of incorporated the idea of, of Craigslist or you know, uh, doing online posts for, for monsters, and we thought it'd be kind of a fun uh, concept. <laughs> and to finish, to wrap it up real quick, I decided to uh, even the... Uh, I didn't want it to just be a found footage film, also because I realized that that subgenre in horror kind of, kind of carries a negative connotation for a reason that I, I don't agree with, but uh, I understand... Uh, some of the people's uh, uh, reasons for that reason. So I decided to incorporate my love for video games, especially games like Call of Duty, which is, are all first-person point of view. Um, I decided to incorporate that aspect of the film as well by putting the, the GoPro or, or um, uh, first-person POV camera on top of my actor's forehead. Well, and I think that... Now, Janice, you also as a filmmaker, in addition to being an actress, I personally think I loved the GoPro that was on... So we got that first-person POV. I really thought that added a great intimacy to the proceedings and worked really, really well. So it put us in the moment. We weren't just watching. We actually got to experience 
Um, well, it had a very raw feel to it. Mm-hmm. It felt like it it could be real. And that's, I think that was what you're trying to convey because it's, you know, people who think they're monsters. That's the, the premise of it at the very beginning. And then they actually are. Uh, when you do it the way that you did it, it gives that raw reality feel that sends people away going, well, maybe, what if? And that's what I almost think sometimes horror does. It gets you, some of it's very fantasy, but this one had a very realness to it. And I wanted to commend you. There was, I was telling Debbie about it. There was one scene, you add an element to this story, to the story that really touches home to real human life. And it was the interview with a vampire. That was my <laughs> absolute favorite scene because of the rawness of Brian's character and she just had his number but there was just something even just in how it was written you could take that scene and even do that again and again in acting classes because there's something just very real about it. and that's what the whole movie was there's a realness to it that you lose if you do a lot of CGI mm-hmm. so I was it was very well done from that perspective thank you you know, how did you, how difficult was it researching and crafting? Because we've all seen enough horror movies. Skinwalkers, I think fewer people are aware of uh, or know the legends of, but vampires and, of course, demonic possession. What kind of research did you do in order to develop, you know, in keeping it with lore and legacy for developing the transformations that we see unfold? So, I, I, so, Soraya, we had to watch a lot of unpleasant videos <laughs> during our research, I think, that uh, uh-huh. that gave us a lot of ideas. Uh, but I think that uh, the first draft of our script eventually basically served as uh, our research because the original draft, the interviews with the monsters were a lot longer. There was a lot, we had a lot more facts included in the interviews, a lot more research included in the interviews, mm-hmm. but then we had to... To cut that down, just to, because we didn't want to, to bore in the audience, uh, with an actual documentary, we wanted to keep it more narrative and keep the, the character development flowing. So we had to kind of make a lot of sense of the uh, actual factual um, information about the monsters and the lore, etc. But uh, Shrine and I also decided to, and Corbin uh, decided to also put our own take on the monsters. I, I particularly like the idea. I've never been a huge fan of. I mean, I, I like the classic idea that vampires. Uh, uh, you know, burn uh, when they when they step onto daylight. But I thought that it'd be nice and interesting to kind of uh, do something different here and just kind of uh, uh, bring the idea that for her it's more like a hangover when you step up mm-hmm. to the bright light of the sun. Uh, I thought it was kind of a, a, a cool take on that idea and also kind of matched the playfulness of her character. Um, after the Skinwalker, we respected the lore behind the creature, but we also kind of went, uh, went more of a werewolf, the werewolf route, just because just I'm a huge fan of werewolves, and I really do look forward to one day making a, a very great, interesting werewolf movie uh, myself. So uh, this was kind of my um, uh, my first take at doing a werewolf movie as well. Well, it's, and something and else. As for the demon, this was kind of, uh, uh, we played by Shiro. Who also did a fantastic job of portraying uh, uh, this poor girl possessed by, by the smiling man. Uh, we just kind of, uh, I mean, I'm a huge fan of, of, of demonic movies, and they are the scariest by far for me. So uh, I thought the, the skinwalker was really cool. The vampire was, was fun, and the, the, the demon is just absolutely terrifying. And that's kind of, we kind of went, went into a different route in terms of feel and, uh, for each monster. Well, and something else that you also did. Victor, is you brought in, you made your filmmakers, all of them were flawed. They all had mm-hmm. human flaws. So you set up this wonderful dynamic for, you know, flawed people are going to attract evil. And it really, but you do it so subtly uh, with just little instances here and there where we're learning little things about each of the quote-unquote human characters. Uh but I really like that. And there again, that goes to the reality, the realism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And was was that something that w- was important to you in developing the script? 
extremely important. That was the first thing we wanted to make sure we told uh, writing the script was that's the one thing that I, that I uh, one of the main things that I do have to criticize about most, not all, but most songs of the films is that there's close to or completely no character development. Uh, they always just jump right into just people talking and then things happen and it's just a reaction of what happens. And for us, it was important to actually make a movie that, that where you, at least, <laughs> hopefully you care about the characters, but where we uh, actually introduce, and in the most parties, you'll see in the first 40 minutes or so, there's a lot of character development and it's more about the relationships of the characters mm-hmm. as they begin the process of finding those monsters, but it's more about those relationships, what they're going through and the problems that they have, especially our main character, how people around him kind of are supporting him, which leads to uh, our transition to the second act when they find out that, that he's, uh, in a way, a liar. Uh, <laughs> the, his weakness basically attracts monsters, and I think all, all of them have uh, some interesting character quali- characteristic uh, and qualities that, um, that lead to basically uh, what happens in the film. You know, I'm curious, did you, did you storyboard this out? How did you work with Jim Benke on developing the look and the makeup and prosthetics for each of these monsters, because it is absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, no, Jim Bikey is just, first of all, I think that had him not come on board at the time when we were looking for investors, I don't think that this film, I, I'm sure we would have still made it. I just don't think it would have looked as good. Jim, mm-hmm. Jim legitimized uh, the film by coming on board. Uh, I, I, I had a pretty solid idea of what I wanted the film to look like, uh, but Jim brought also his own ideas to it, and uh, and I, I trust him because he's so talented. And, uh, so so he he designed the, the Skinwalker and and uh, and did something amazing with it. And same thing with the vampires. Uh, I, I you know we were Jim and I had agreed from the get go that we love the idea of, of two vampire teeth on each side and etc. So and, and he did the uh, a bunch of prosthetics for them as well. So uh, he's just very talented, and, and so we kind of tackled it. Uh, Together and, and he, uh, he he and his team because he also had a quite a big team of people uh, to create those those uh, those monsters mm-hmm. uh, prosthetics etc. Uh, they just did an incredible job. You know how closely did Jim did you and Jim work with Phil, your cinematographer, because you're shooting a lot of this with night vision. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, it really and in order to bring out all of the detail in the makeup and the prosthetics. You've really got to work with the DP to get the lighting right and still have the lighting that you need to see to, it <laughs> to see it and convey the ambient nature of of the of the scene. So how challenging was that? What kind of collaboration did the three of you have to develop that palette, that tonal bandwidth so we could appreciate Jim's great work? <laughs> well, first of all, Jim Phil and I got along really well the get-go and so 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 we're really really close friends and then uh i think that to be honest filming it was was rather uh challenging very challenging because we only had 15 days to shoot the entire film uh and and when you're looking at stunts almost every day and heavy special effects every day uh just for example applying all the fake tattoos on a vampire actress would take three to four hours i think then plus the or combined with her prosthetics uh, that they would have to add on to her, so four to five hours, something like that, and uh, the skinwalker and, and et cetera. So, so it was just uh, between that and then stunts, we were just very pressed for time, and so it was just kind of moving around all the time and, 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 and speeding through it. Uh, but uh, we, you know, we had storyboarded, like you, like you mentioned, I, sto- I had my, uh, my storyboard artist, Richard Rios, who's fantastic, uh, we, him and I spent a lot of time getting the storyboards right before shooting mm-hmm. for all the action scenes. Everything that involved um, uh, stunts or uh, action sequences, those were storyboarded beforehand. So it's not like we decided to kind of go into that house and just and just roll the cameras and just see what whatever came of it. We we, we planned to film out very in very mm-hmm. high detail beforehand, and then just it was all about just executing vision that I had while we were while we had the time to do it. Um, and then, um, and to be honest with you, also we did uh, uh, fix the challenge during shooting that we our monitors <laughs> didn't barely ever worked, so we were shooting blindly yeah. almost all the time. <laughs> and we noticed halfway through filming uh, the the action scenes that the night vision, because we were shooting in night vision, uh, we no- we noticed that actually some of the special effects, the practical special effects that Jim had done, would get lost, especially blood. 
get lost uh, when shooting in night vision. So we actually had to do a, a few um, quick reshoots, or a quick reshoot, um, I think three months after principal shooting, just to kind of recapture some of the special effects that, that had been lost because of night vision. Um, and which, which, by the way, was, was never mentioned anywhere in the record of anyone saying that night shooting in night vision uh, would uh, actually uh, kind of, uh, uh, that the details in the latex uh, and special effects would get lost. So, so that was kind of a challenge that we had to face uh, during filming and after filming, just to kind of make sure that uh, the monsters did look uh, to their best um, ability on camera. Well, and, and I'm glad you went back for some of the reshoots because, yeah, seeing seeing pools of blood and things like that really does add, especially poor Jamal. I got to tell you, okay, Janessa's is laughing. She know I love Jamal. I his performance is great. The character is great. I love Jamal, and this poor guy gets his back shredded, and then all of a sudden he looks like the hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, but he's cool. He's cool. He's cool. <laughs> I'm cool. I mean, it's you know, wh- I gotta say, you know, number one, he. I mean, he looks fabulous. The reshoots w- with him, really well done. Muriel, you know, obviously you had some reshoots there for the pools of blood on on the floor, but. I got to ask, where did you find Jamal? Because he is just so much fun. I mean, I'm so happy to question. Um, so we, so originally a long time ago when Try and I wrote the script, Phil was going to, so Jamal's character was originally going to be Phil, my DP. I was going to be Devin. And then uh, there was uh, our friend Brian Jensen uh, was going to be Brian. And I think that was it originally at the time when we first wrote the very, very rough first draft. Uh, but eventually we, we, we changed our, we kind of changed the path that we were taking with the film and rewrote the film and just kind of uh, decided to make a real professional film. Uh, and, uh, and so anyway, so I, I, I found Miguel and um, Stephen Flores, who plays the Skinwalker and Shiori, who plays Shiori, uh, and I, I think I'm missing some other actors right now in my head, but I found uh, a lot of those actors uh, while I was working on a show called Delusion. Uh, it's a L.A. live interactive play. And oh. and so I had I had a lot of my cast already casted uh, a long time ago, about three years ago. They were already cast. And then uh, the main character that was missing at the time was Jamal. So we found him, I think, on L.A. casting. Uh, I was doing my own auditions uh, for the fir- very first round of auditions. Uh, eventually we had a casting directors come aboard. Um, but, uh, um, he, I remember seeing a very funny profile picture of him. And so we invited him to audition and he came in and I remember just me, Phil, Shariah, we were all, and Brian, we were all the floor just laughing and, and dying. Uh, he just made us laugh. He had such a positive and, and hilarious energy that, uh, uh, cause Jamal's character originally was not named Jamal and he was not a funny character. Uh, we didn't have that added com- comedic aspect um, parts of the script originally. And so, so he brought not only his energy uh, to the film and, and, and was such a, such a great actor, but he also made us add that comedic uh, element into the script more so than what we had before uh, into his character, which I really think uh, did something very, very great and interesting for the film. Yeah, it brought balance to it. If you, if everything's so serious, it really loses its novelty. And when you have that comedic yeah. element, it really rounded it out. And he was that perfect timed. Whenever it was just so dark and so <laughs> dense, then there's Jamal. And uh, exactly. But he's also a human character, too, because he did have a little bit of a confrontation in there. But his that made him real. But he was still... Yeah. So he wasn't like out of bounds comedic in that sense where someone's just like, okay, they're not real. He does have a a human element to Mm -hmm. him, but he brought in that comedic aspect that really balanced everything out. And that's what makes this such a well-balanced classic horror flick. Mm -hmm. It's got everything you could possibly want. Mm -hmm. It'll probably go very, very far. Very well done. No, and and, you know, he's... it was actually quite complex character for him to play because he's also playing with the idea, with the fact that he's kind of stuck between Brian and Devin. Yes. Devin being his boss per se, pays him. Yes. And then Brian, who's his best friend, but then they're in conflict, so he's kind of the middleman who's facing the situation and trying to kind of control it and maintain it. But uh, it's, it's kind of a complicated character, and uh, I, I thought that he handled it really nicely. So, you know, Jamal's a very, uh, very uh, passionate and talented actor that that we all all were very proud to work with. Yeah. Oh, well, that's, uh, I said to Janess before we went on air today, I said, I love Jamal. 
I it just <laughs> he really because from the start, so everything that happens once horror starts to unfold, from the get go, we find out his personality in the first scenes where he's in the car where he's not charging the batteries on the camera. <laughs> we know who this man is. Mm-hmm. And you yeah. and that endears him to you. So already going in, we're we're con- the audience is is going to connect with Jamal. He is your way in to you know that's who everybody is really going to. That's going to be the touchstone, I think, for the audience. No idea what I'm doing, but I'm enjoying it. That's kind of Jamal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm enjoying my life. So so how excited? No, that's good to hear. Yeah, how excited are you, Victor? The film is now going. It's going to hit uh, what theaters and VOD this Friday. That's correct, yeah. Um, we're premiering it and uh, at the Lemmy Theater on Friday, and then I believe that, uh, yeah, then it runs there for a week. Uh, I'm not sure about the other theaters just yet, um, uh, but at the picture they're distributing it in a couple other screens around the country. And, uh, yeah, it'll be available so everywhere on VOD. Uh, and, and we're very, very excited. And we, we hope that people will love it as much as you guys do. Uh, because so, uh, we really like it, and we're very happy with, uh, it has with uh, everything, the end product. Yeah, it's like what I was saying a, a little bit before. It has everything you could possibly want in a horror flick. Of course, it's got the gore, but it has the story element. It has all the mm-hmm. different characters. Every character has their own point of view. And what you even coupled that with was their cameras. That that's their point of view of what they're seeing unfolding. And it's got the happy elements, the romantic elements, the scary elements, of course. The jealous the elements. The jealous elements. <laughs> Elements, the humanistic yep. elements. There are there. Everyone's going to have something that they can relate to, in each character that they can relate to in this um, movie. And like I said before, that scene. There's that one interview. I keep going back to that. That one could be literally taken out, and somebody could do that in an acting class, or take that mm-hmm. and do that in a workshop, because there's a real human element and that's what people will relate to is the human aspect the human element jamal and his funny nature and then him trying to play hey let's just keep it cool guys and then uh of course the the boss and everyone's going to be able to relate to this and the the you could almost this this film and story was done in such a way that you could almost have sequels oh yeah you could almost take this you've got the Depending on how well this goes, you could so take this and run with it. Mm-hmm. So very well done. I'd sure like to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, maybe you and I can talk about it because I've got ideas. <laughs> she has. Jeunesse always has ideas. Let me tell you. Yeah. Well, Victor, unfortunately, Hi. that's that's all the time we have today. I can't thank all you. Right. I can't thank you enough for joining us on Behind the Lens today. This has been a real treat. I love this film. Jeunesse loves this film. Yes. And I, everybody needs to go see this film. And I personally am going to go see it in the theater because I want to see it on the big, big screen. I appreciate that. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for your kind words. Oh, and I hope, um, you'll, I hope you'll come back on the show again. Whenever you want to have me, just... Watch uh, your project, too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Victor, thank you so much. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. So Bye. And that was Victor Matthew, writer, director... Of the Monster Project. And if we were doing thumbs up, we'd be giving it two thumbs up today. Yeah, he, it's very well done. I yeah. mean, it's, when you look at it as a project as a whole, it's just, it's beautifully done. It's not something, it's, you're not going to go out and just go, oh, I know exactly what happens. Or yeah. it's, you're going to watch it as you would a classic horror yeah. clip. Flip. And you don't know what's going to happen. No. You really don't. No. But something else people need to go see. The R&P concert. Saturday. 8 p.m. Saturday. 8 p.m. Hudson, 8 PM, Hudson Theater. 6539 Santa Monica Boulevard. $15 tickets online or you can purchase them at the door at the Hudson box office. The box office opens 45 minutes before the show. So you just walk up and then you can pay $20 at the door. Or you can bring your Eventbrite ticket, which you can purchase on aboutgenest.com or on our Facebook page at RMP concerts or just google rising monarch productions concerts and you'll find it that and way. you'll find it facebook so. twitter it's everywhere it's everywhere Jean- just like janess jacqueline yeah. of all trades she's everywhere. everywhere well we are out of time for the show thank you so much for coming yes. yet again i love this she comes it's and she fun. even helps me set dress and set up of course. I, this woman is fabulous because it's fun it's fun it's something to do <laughs> 
Well, and next week, I think Rachel Crow is going to be joining us, and I think Amy Fox. And it's going to be a show about with some new transgender shows that are coming oh. out and transgender actors and a- actresses being cast in those wow. roles. So, Wow. I'm very excited to have Rachel. I met her at LA Film Festival, and it, it, she is just fabulous. So I'm thrilled that she's going to be calling in. Oh, that's great. So... Until next time, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.